Welcome to Roadmap to Joy. My name is Scott Harris. I am the manager of continuous improvement here at Embark. As part of our 101 series on mental health, I have the honor of speaking today with Richard, whose child Victor was participating in our Kalo program here at Embark. And Richard's going to be here exploring the really important question for many parents today, which is, how do I know that treatment is working for my child? So Richard, welcome to Roadmap to Joy. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. And uh, let's, let's get started with, you know, perhaps hearing a little bit from you, Richard, about what was it like before treatment began? So Victor's behavior was always difficult. He was a very colicky baby. But as he got older and bigger, the problem that we had is that his behavior became more violent and more aggressive. Um, towards the end of the time that he was here before we sent him off to treatment in 18 months, we had to call the cops out 22 times for just being out of control, property damage, property destruction. Um, we couldn't keep ourselves safe and it was just continuously escalating. And so, I mean, we had to make the painful decision with the advice, under the advice and guidance of our our BHRS team, that we could no longer provide him services at home and keep him safe at home and that we needed to move him to a treatment facility. And it's really hard because he was nine at the time. And so to, mm. you know, the thought of sending your nine-year-old away is a very painful and difficult one. But the turning point was the chief of police. We live in a small town. And the chief of police told my wife that his behavior was so violent that it was getting to be unsafe for his police officers. And that at some point he would be forced to press charges. And we're talking about a nine-year-old. Wow. So it was pretty extreme. That must have been incredibly difficult for you to hear about your child, I would imagine. Is, but we also knew, we felt like we were begging for help. We had all the right mm -hmm. services. Technically speaking, we hit all the check boxes. We did BHRS. We had medication therapy. You know, we had in-home therapy. We did talk therapy. We did play therapy. I mean, like we were exhausted. And the challenge is, is that because of his diagnosis, which is reactive attachment disorder, the therapist's advice was the equivalent of throwing gasoline on a fire and then being upset that it's not going out. And it was the complete opposite of everything that we learned to do with Embark, which is why we were eventually able to bring him home and be successful. So basically what I'm hearing is that you were trying everything you knew to do, but the treatments that were being offered to you were actually not, in fact, helping him, in fact, making things worse. Absolutely. I mean, because a lot of the treatment methodologies that we were advised, it's like the top down of, I am the father, you will respect my, you know, you will listen to me. and that doesn't work. I mean, the truth is, is that what works now is a relationship that I have with my child. And he knows he can come to me and he knows we can talk about things and he knows. And that comes from a lot of other work, but not because he's afraid of me or because he thinks that I'm going to take anything away from him. He does it because he knows it's easier to teach him right from wrong by modeling the behavior and by having a really strong relationship with him. And it sounds like you're really able to attune with him when he's having those difficult times and 
be able to accept that he's having a difficult time and also work through that with him. And and that's the complete opposite of what, especially especially the way that I was raised. And I think for me personally, that's what made this so difficult. When we were growing up, there was no attunement. There was no, not that there was no empathy. It was, there was no looking at the child and realizing the child is having a hard time. How do I meet them where they are and then bring them where I need to be? Instead, it was, you will meet me where I am, and if you don't, you'll be punished. And you're right, the attunement was a huge piece, um, and it caused, it has helped me grow a lot as a parent, um, and it's been wonderful. That's so good to hear, and uh, I'm really, really happy to hear that it's not just, you know, not just Victor that's benefiting from this, but the whole family, in fact. Because attunement is so important in any relationship, actually, not just not just in a parent-child relationship. What was it that first led you to embark seek, seeking treatment for Victor? So my son had a very long road um, and a lot of being thrown out of places um, and a lot of mislabeling. And the last place he was at was a therapeutic boarding school and that he had to leave because they couldn't keep him safe. The problem was, is that my son attached very strongly to his therapist at this place. And at the particular facility he was at, they said, listen, we can't keep him safe. We hate to see him go, but it's a safety issue. But we really think it's rad because of how much, how tightly he attached to his therapist. And he would rage for two hours. She would show up and they said it was like a light switch that flipped. So once we did that and we started talking to our therapy, our, our consultant and our educational consultant, I started doing some research and I came up, I came across Kalo. When I talked to the admissions counselor and explained to her the complexity of what we were told was the untreatable child, her reaction was, oh, this is normal for us. Like, this is all we deal with. And it was such a relief because we were told that he could never live at home because he was out of control. We were told that he was a sociopath and there was no hope. We were told like all kinds of horrible things. And here I am, I call somebody at Kalo, I speak to the admissions manager and she was like, oh yeah, we deal with this all the time. And then she laid out the treatment plan of why it's different. The combination of neurotherapy, which it was 50% of what, you know, why he things got better and then the other 50 percent was the actual therapeutic piece because for kids like him until his brain calmed down enough to receive the therapy it doesn't do any good yeah so he actually had to get to a receptive point for the therapy even to be a you know effective for him so we sent him one place for stabilization because we were so afraid that he would get thrown out again um, and then we hmm. sent him to Kalo and once like from the day we got there, I will never forget, like, you know, we were emailing back and forth and they had a therapy dog waiting for him. They had a staff member ready for him. I mean, it was so welcoming and open and not restrictive. Um, I mean, they, you know, when I left, like my memory of leaving him was they had a senior, uh, they had a staff member go for a walk with him because that was what was important to him. And he got to walk one of the golden retrievers. And, you know, they, because Kayla was like, look, we're not going to just put you in a, like an isolated unit. 
and say you can't come out until you prove your privileges. No, they were outside because that's what kids need. And it was amazing that first, I mean, from that first day, nothing was the same with how Kalo approached things versus every other treatment facility. And nothing against them. It's just Kalo was more attuned to him and what he needed. Yeah, it sounds like that the approach at Kalo very specifically met his needs in a way that the other programs couldn't um, based on what they were using. For those of you who, who haven't heard of Kalo, it's uh, Change Academy Lake of the Ozarks, one of our programs um, that Victor had attended. And uh, the particular framework that we utilize within Embark uh, called CASA focuses around healthy attachment and attunement. And that's really what Richard has you know, you're talking about here and from day one, you know, meeting Victor where he's at, introducing him to an animal, which is another means of introducing an individual to healthy attachment, creating a, a safe, trusting relationship with an animal, setting boundaries with an animal because they will set boundaries with you too, um, is a really good, you know, it's a safe introduction into that, that kind of therapeutic modality. So did you ever have any doubts about the treatment, Richard, and whether, whether it would work? I, I honestly felt, I mean, I would, I, was, I would joke around that it was very hippie-ish because they were so in tune to him. And so I grew up with a, in a very stern family. I am, we were first-generation immigrants. Um, my parents came from Jerusalem. So when we were growing up, my, my brother would say, Dad, we live in America. And my dad says, no, you don't. He was like, outside my house is the United States of America. Inside the house is Jerusalem, old city. So I grew up very authoritative household. And so when you hear somebody like my son's therapist talk about attunement and meeting kids where they are, I was very skeptical um, mm. because it went completely against everything I thought you should do. I remember once my son was tired, he showed up to therapy and he was just in a foul mood and he refused to engage. And so the therapist said, okay, we don't have to talk, but we're going to spend your therapeutic time here. And I was furious because I'm like, what are we paying you for? I mean, like I was in a very angry spot and her response, which made sense later is I have to meet him where he is every time he comes. So he knows that this is a safe place. And several months later, there was an incident in the milieu. He got upset and he ran to her office in tears and was able to calm down, be appropriate, verbally express what was going on. No damage, no violence, no... I mean, it was a total 180. Wow. And it was those little wins when I had to learn that I had to change what my perception of therapy was going to be. Because my perception of therapy was, they're going to teach him to respect my authority. And what Casa taught me was, I had to learn to attune with him. And then based on a relationship, we could have a, things would improve. And that's what has honestly been the key to the long-term success that we've had with him. Is It's an ongoing relationship, and that is why we have done so well, and that's why I do these talks and will help anybody. And I speak so highly of that model because it's really the way that, in my opinion, you want your relationship to be with your kids. You don't want them to fear you. You want them to love you and respect you and do what you need because of that. And I think that's such a great point. And, you know, when we're talking about CASA, we're talking about commitment, 
acceptance, security, and attunement. And what you're describing so beautifully, Richard, is the journey that you both went on through that and you seeing, you know, the your mindset change as, as Victor was going through that treatment and how the therapy was actually being used and the approach we were using. And and it sounds like, you know, you could see the challenge you were having from your upbringing and, mm-hmm. and how you viewed the world, right? And and how your household viewed the world of therapy versus what we were bringing and and how useful that can be once you can actually take a different look at things. Um, using that CASA framework totally shifts the outcome. Absolutely. And I think the way I look at it is that in all of our jobs, what kind of manager do you want to work for? Do you want to work for the one who's authoritative or do you want to work for the one that shows compassion when you need it? And we all want the one who shows compassion when we need it. And then the question becomes, why don't we do the same for our kids? And that was, I think, for me, a turning point as well. Do you think this has changed your approach to relationships and, and your work outside? It has because now I'm the one that wants to know, like, I, genuinely, I want to know if you're cranky, why are you cranky? Like, I want to ask my manager, my VP, I want to ask him, what color are you today? Are you red? Are we having a red day? But I can't for <laughs> obvious reasons. But the point is, is sure. that if my manager yells at me, I have to be very careful to say, well, why are we having such a strong reaction? Because... But I can also understand and take a step back to realize that he's having a strong reaction because of something that's going on with him. And if he's frustrated with me for something, then I need to teach him how to have a better interaction with me and how mm-hmm. to, and I know how to have that conversation now in a way that doesn't leave them feeling threatened. And it's just very, it's still not easy, but it's a lot easier than it used sure. to be. And I can do it in a way that says that's not pointing the finger and telling them you're wrong, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, it sounds like you're able to attune with them and uh, and, and meet them where they're at. Correct. And I think that's critical to yeah. all relationships because we all have bad yeah. days. And I think the attunement piece is just recognizing that somebody else can be having one too and don't take it personally. Yeah. And it, for me, it's it's so interesting, you know, when I think about therapy that, you know, we we can look at somebody in a dysregulated moment and obviously want to shift them into regulation and feeling okay, right? Of course we want to. But this approach actually teaches us that what we really need to do is accept them for where they're at and then attune with them where they're at in order to find out what's going on, what's happening for them to get them back to a point of regulation so that we can then be together with them in that moment. Absolutely. Or when would you say you started to notice changes during the visits with with Victor? The the huge turning point, um, shortly after he started the neurotherapy, I remember we went up for a visit and we took him shopping. So we went to Target. And before neurotherapy, Victor would ask for something because he's a child. And when we said no, his brain was like a record player stuck on a loop and he could not stop obsessing over, let's just say he wanted like a Nerf gun. He would ask for the Nerf gun and two hours later, he was still thinking about the Nerf gun. He was getting riled up because he didn't get it. And there might be a violent tantrum. 
for something where we said no two hours ago or six hours ago. After neurotherapy, he was able to drop it. We were able to distract him. That, to me, was the biggest aha moment or the first big aha moment that we had. That is when I understood that all of the brain imaging that they showed us, the, all of the reports, that's when, I, that's when it went from being theory to being mm. practically working for my kid. And it was amazing. So you actually start to see that, you know, the theory come to life in his behavior and, and your ability to be able to impact that in real life. Correct. And then as time went on, what we saw is that all kids will have tantrums, and we know that. But the level and escalation of his tantrums stopped being violent. Um, I mean, now mm -hmm. the worst he does is he might rip up some papers. Okay, you know what? I've done that too. I mean, like really, when we compare ripping up papers to having four police officers try to corner him and holes in the drywall, because that's what our life was like. I'm fine with ripped up papers and a thrown hat here and there because it's not thrown at us. He's not trying to hurt us. He's, you know, and even those are so infrequent and so far in between. Um, that's when long term we started seeing a difference. And I think for me, that's more maturity and emotional self-regulation that all of us kind of had to learn at that age. At least I know I did because I had a temper. And I view that as more age appropriate than I do what we were dealing with before we were at Kalo. Mm. And it's such a huge uh, disparity. I mean, you went from having violence and the police involved on a regular basis, it sounds like, to ripping up some papers. I mean, did you ever think you would get to that point? No. Honestly, no. I At one point, um, the BHRS that we were dealing with told us that we were going to send Victor to RTC. So the plan was we were going to send him to RTC and then send him to a therapeutic boarding school. And that's where he would finish up. And then after that, we were told his best bet was the military because it's a regimented life. Um, mm. He finished one RTC. Nobody would take him for a therapeutic boarding school, so we put him in wilderness. He lasted maybe two weeks in wilderness, possibly three, and then he was thrown out, um, and they told us he was too violent. So mm. at that point, we kind of lost hope, um, and we had a different path, and then eventually we ended up at Kalo. But it was never did I think he would be like he is now. I mean, in, at the beginning of March, he's going to start one job. When he turned, because in Pennsylvania, you can start working when you're 14. Um, when he turns 15, he's going to get a second job working at a shoe store because he likes shoes, um, the high-end shoes. And then he has opportunity for another job to go back to work in construction with some friends of the family who have a construction company. There's no way before Kalo he would have been mature enough or safe enough. And I never would have believed him to be able to. So now it sounds like he, you know, he has a whole future ahead of him where he gets to do what he wants to do with his life. Absolutely. And it's because he can control himself, right? I mean, he gets angry like the rest of us do. But the neurotherapy 
took care of, kept his brain from going from zero to 100. And like, you know, like we would say, like a switch flipped. I mean, he still gets angry. He still gets upset. But now it's within the upper and lower control limits of what's normal and what's acceptable. Um, he is in the emotional support classroom and the emotional support environment at school because he would not do well in a regular classroom. But he's thriving in that environment. And that's only because of the work that we did at Kalo, where he can find people that he can talk to, where he can find adults that he's safe with, where he can remove himself if he needs to. And before, that was never even in the cards. That must be such a relief for him. You know, I mean, I'm sure it was difficult for you, but for him, he must have been so frustrated with, you know, trying so many different things and not ever really achieving the results. and to finally getting the support that works for him and now being able to succeed in, in school and in life. It's interesting is that I talked to him about life before treatment and he doesn't remember any of it. And we actually talked mm. to his therapist about it. And I was like, you know, as a dad, I'm concerned. And she said, no, she was like, he basically compartmentalized it. And at this stage in his life, he's just sort of filed that away in his brain. Um, because it was so hard on him. And what's interesting mm. is, is that as a parent, and I hear this from other parents, we have our own PTSD where we get the same physical reaction. Like I still get, when the phone rings and it's the school, my stomach drops, I get lightheaded. Like I still go into that, oh no moment. And sometimes it's just some calling me because they want to get the approval to give them some Advil, but it doesn't mm. matter. And it's, but that's the work that we as parents have to do and it's getting better, but he doesn't remember it. It's interesting. It's like, he has no recollection of life before Kalo or he does, but not wow. anything that's, that stands out. But it, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, the impact that it has on you and your family and the PTSD that you have in your bodies from living that experience for as long as you did. And, you know, the reaction to something as simple as a telephone call and kind of coming out of your skin wondering what that's going to be, because I'm sure there have been so many bad versions of that. And, mm -hmm. and now you don't have that anymore and slowly getting to let that go and do some work around that so that you can you know, kind of relax into this new way of being <laughs> where you don't have to worry so much. Yeah, we're working on it. And what a huge um, relief. <laughs> it is. It's a huge relief. The other thing that's a relief is that now he is old enough and safe enough that I can trust him to be out in the neighborhood for hours at a time. And, you know, I mean, he has his phone. He calls, you know, he's required to check in every so often. But I'm not worried about him getting in trouble. I'm not worried about him going to the extremes that we did before he was at Kalo. Mm. We, so it's been really interesting because now we can relax, whereas before we could. I mean, we yeah. were always on edge waiting for the shoe to drop. How would you say um, the treatment has changed your relationship with Victor? It's night and day. Um, I mean, I remember when he was five or six, I was going to take him out for an afternoon just to kind of give my wife a break. 
And at the thought of spending time with me alone, he started crying because he did not want to be with me, you know, alone with me. And I yelled at him something to the effect of, come on, we're going to have fun if you like it or not. I mean, like, you know, because that goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Like, you're going to reach, you're going to listen to me. Now I am, now my wife and I go back to being, take turns being the favorite parent, kind of like when they're toddlers, you know, like the baby loves child, you know, parent one, one day and parent B the other. Um, He is much, he and I are much closer. Um, He comes with me pretty much everywhere I go, even if it's just to run an errand. Um, Like today I was, we had to go and ship something off. I mean, we were gone 20 minutes. But if dad is going somewhere, he wants to be with dad. If mom is going somewhere and dad is staying home, he's going to stay home with dad nine times out of 10. And that's just, that's a really, I mean, that's a night and day difference of how it was. He still prefers mom when he's sick. He still prefers mom other times. But it's a lot of times when you have a child with mental health issues, they tend to gravitate towards one parent only, and it's not fair because that one parent burns out. Now it's been hmm. more 50. It, we can, it's easier to be 50-50. And my wife and I are better about communicating when, look, I'm like, I wake up, I'm cranky. I just need a day or I need a few hours where I'm not disturbed. And that was the other thing is in learning to be attuned with him, my wife and I learned to be in more attunement with each other. So it's been, it's been fun because we laugh and we joke around about it. Like if she's cranky or I'm cranky, she'll look at me and be like, now what color are you? And why are you that color? (laughs) I mean, like, and it's just, but we laugh and we joke a lot more and we didn't do that before. Yeah. That's amazing. Just to hear, you know, first of all, that, you know, the part about him wanting to spend time with you. I mean, that must just feel amazing from where you were at to getting to that point. There's days, but I've also had to learn to set boundaries. Of mm. We live in a very walkable neighborhood. Um, our city is great sidewalks, all of that. There are times where I'll put in a 12-hour day and I'm fried. And I just want to go for a walk by myself. And he was like, can I come? And I found myself getting resentful because I didn't want to say no. So I talked to a mm-hmm. therapist about it and she corrected me and she's like, actually, no, you're supposed to say no. Because you want to teach him that you need to take care of yourself just like he needs to take care of himself. And that just because he wants to spend time with you, you don't always have to say yes. It's okay to say no. Just make sure you're saying yes way more than you're saying no. And that's sort of what I've had to learn. So it is nice. It is fun. But there are days where it's like, you know, you can detach from me. And then there's other days where I look at mm-hmm. him and I'm bored. And I'm like, you want to do something? And he's like, no, because I'm going off here. or I'm going off there to hang out with friends. And okay, so we're learning. But I think now we're learning like all other parents are who have only one child. And that you're growing with your child. And it sounds like you're able to navigate and set really healthy boundaries with him too. Correct. And then we've also found other support groups online and things like that where we can go and there's not many places I can say my child was overwhelmed and he walked out of school today because that happened before because his classroom was pure chaos. His safe people in school weren't there and we Mm -hmm. live a mile away from school. And so one day he called me, he was crying. He's like, I can't take it. 
I'm like, you need to stay. And he was like, no. And the next thing I know, he showed up at home and slept for three hours. Because his fight or flight still kicks in sometimes. And Mm. and and it's only happened once. And so it's not a regular thing. But I can also show, you know, we can also put down some restrictions for that one day. But we don't do anything over the top. So he knows not to do it again. So I feel like we're always trying to balance, but I think that's every parent. So, I mean, it sounds like you've, you've gotten a lot from the program itself as parents and you, I can hear in what you're sharing that you're implementing things, you know, to, to help put self, um, safe and healthy boundaries in place. What would you say are the, the biggest take homes from the program that you've gotten as parents? Uh, biggest one for me was to recognize that my child and his needs are very different than any other kid that I know. And so Mm -hmm. I can't expect to parent him the same way other people are parenting their kids. You know, and I think that's, and I mean, my brother is a perfect example with my nephew. You know, with my nephew, when he was little, if he was having a tantrum and my brother screamed, my nephew would stop and start behaving. And so my brother's answer to everything was, well, just scream at the kid and you'll stop. No. With Victor, that would have the total opposite reaction. That's the worst thing you can do. It was recognizing that through Kalo, that attunement and modifying everything for the specific situation is what works for him. There is no one, one size, one answer fits all. There's times that we need to talk about our feelings. There's times we don't. There's times we need to go for a walk and not talk, and times we can go for a walk and process. Every day it's something different. And it's my job as a parent to just figure it out on the fly. Um, We have the right tools, but we just have to figure out. We are figuring it all out on the fly. And I think as parents, when we see other parents struggling, we don't ever admit to ourselves. We don't admit to them. I get it. This is hard. And there is no, what, you know, what works on Monday isn't going to necessarily work on Tuesday. And that's okay. That's such a great take home to have some uh, grace around your, yourself and your situation, right? You're, you're not, we're none of us perfect, right? And, and we're doing the best we can and dealing with challenging situations and, you know, we're learning as we go, and um, and you're making great progress. It sounds like, as is Victor, um, and and still there can be challenges. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talked about parent, you know, parent support groups as well, which I think is great. Like, so, you know, you're not alone in that, and you you can talk about these things to people who understand what you're talking about, um, because otherwise, these situations can be very isolating. I would imagine. Well, we actually, and I think a lot of other parents who are on this journey can relate to this in the fact that we lost touch with some people and we lost friends over this. Mm. And it is, I had one person explain to me, he was like, well, we just didn't know what to do. And my wife is never short for words, said, call and say, what can I do to help? I mean, like there was a time when we were in and out of ERs and inpatients. And my wife said, you know what would have been nice if somebody just said, can I mow your front yard? Like, Mm. nothing you're going to say is going to make it better, so don't try. 
just help me by mowing the yard. I don't want to talk to you. And I think when we get when people isolate from us, it's because they don't know what to do. And it's like, no, just sometimes just say, hey, what can I offer you to make your home life easier? Can I order mm. you a pizza? I'd have been, I'd have loved it if people ordered pizza from me once a week. I mean, I'd have been as happy as could, you know, because sometimes it's like the little things and it is isolating, but it's getting better. Um, I work in healthcare. I know we talk more and more about mental health in the healthcare space. I think we have a long way to go, um, but people are talking about it more now than they did before. And I think that's a good start. I totally agree. And I think it's it's really interesting hearing you say some of these things because I, you know, I would imagine people would struggle with how could they help, right? Because what could you do in that situation? But when you say things that are so simple, because you're focusing on your child and the situation and being perhaps in the emergency room, you know, those little things that you have, people take for granted, like mowing the grass or, you know, cooking dinner. Um, you know, it's a big deal when when you're there focusing on your kid mm -hmm. and just having that kind of support framework around you would be incredibly helpful. Yeah, we've, I mean, I think for me, what I, in hindsight, I wish I asked for more help too. Um, mm. I think it's, it's one of those where you feel, hor I mean, when you're going through the mental health system, you're so beat up. Um, in our case, we were told time and again that we were doing the wrong thing, that it was our fault. Mm -hmm. it actually, it wasn't until we got to Kalo um, that somebody looked at us and the staff said, you really did everything right. And that was another thing that was so refreshing about the Embark family, um, is they understood that we did everything we could do, and they helped absolve us of a lot of guilt not from a placating, oh, you really tried, but from more of a clinical standpoint of, listen, we're clinicians, we've studied this. Let me explain to you the science of why this doesn't work. And then we could have the candid conversations and the therapeutic conversations as a part of his healing was our own healing. Um, he had to, For him to heal, we had to heal, and we had to heal for him to heal. And if the two of us weren't doing mm -hmm. it together, it wasn't going to work. And then when he got home, we had to continue. It's wonderful now um, because we still have a lot of support, but it's a very challenging journey. I think it's such an interesting point and an important point to talk about that the family has to heal together. You know, we, we're not just sending a kid away to therapy or to treatment to heal in isolation, that the family gets to heal as well and they need to heal in order for that treatment to work and in order for it to sustain when the child comes back into the household. Um, and, and you just, you know, put it so beautifully. And obviously we're there, you know, on that journey with Victor the whole time. So the way they explained it to me um, and his therapist, I think, said it, and it was very telling, is if Victor has a, re a, a behavior, whatever it is, if I don't change my reaction, then I can't expect him to sustain the changes he made in therapy. And it, the way she described, the way it was described to me is, is that it was an unfair expectation of me as a parent. And that mm -hmm. really hit home. Um, it was like, 
if you know going back to the issue like i said before with you know one of my leaders one of my leaders gets upset about something i can't meet him at the same level of anger that he is coming to me with because that's just going to escalate and not end well for one or both of us it was the same thing with my child so now whenever he gets upset we just get really quiet and it's funny because when we get really quiet the stuff that comes out of his mouth is even funnier because he's like, why aren't you talking? Why aren't you saying anything? (laughs) (laughs) But I would much rather that than engage and escalate. Mm -hmm. So I've learned a long time ago that if I keep my mouth shut when I'm angry, I have nothing to apologize for later. That is a a great, (laughs) uh, great perspective. Um, so what's it been like for you observing and, and participating um, with Victor on this healing journey and actually seeing him heal, experiencing him heal? It's actually helped me a lot with my own challenges um, because in order for him to have the behaviors that I want, which is to forgive, to show empathy, to really think before he acts, um, I have to be the same way. The, and I had a manager, uh, a leader once tell me, she was like, revenge is a dish best served cold. And she was trying to be like all serious and dramatic. And I told her, no. I'm like, it served hot, it served cold, and it served for generations to come. <laughs> <I was like, laughs> because that was how I was raised. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was raised you don't forgive. For my son to continue to do well, I had to learn to watch him and how quickly he can forgive and to do the same because he'll have a falling out with a friend on Monday and that same friend will be over on Tuesday. And to me, that was a good example of him setting something for me. And so then I do the same thing with him whenever I talk about work. You know, we have very honest, candid conversations about what's going on at my job and when I'm happy and when I'm not and why. And I couldn't do that before Kalo because we didn't have that relationship. Mm. I didn't have that level of confidence in myself to open up that much to my kid because I looked at him like, you're just a kid. And what I didn't understand is that he wanted to know. Um, But I Mm. also learned that we can't, it's like, if I want to talk to him about his, if I want him to talk to me about his feelings, I have to set the stage. And if he's ready, we talk. And that was really hard because I, one of my careers was a project manager. So I want everything on a timeline and deadlines and milestones. And I cracked up his therapist because um, she's like, I don't have a timeline for you. She was like, I'm sorry, I can't tell you in three months we're going to have this breakthrough. And I'm like, and that was very difficult. For me, I'm an analyst, I'm a numbers person, I'm a project manager. I want a timeline, I want, and it doesn't work. And that was really difficult for me to learn and to understand. But when I did, it was a lot easier because then I stopped being as demanding of him. And then he Mm -hmm. stopped feeling the pressure. And once he stopped feeling the pressure, then it was easier for him to open up. And I didn't realize I was inadvertently causing him damage. Hmm. by trying to be so regimented and that I needed to change the way that I approached things and looked at things. Wow. That, that's amazing to hear. 
and your your self-awareness and applying what you learn just had a huge impact on him yeah so he's it, it's been an amazing journey so far and what advice would you have to parents who might still be out there struggling and looking for behavioral health support for their child to me i think anything that's behavior modification it does not matter if the kid is adopted with a reactive attachment disorder or not is inappropriate um behavior modification teaches the kids that there is somebody in authority and that they need to submit to the person in authority. The way that CASA works is that it's about relationships. And it is about wanting to do something and not needing to do something. And the thing is, is that I know for us, and I've had this conversation with other parents, are like, well, when do I know when to send my kid to residential? And my answer to that is, is that when you feel like you're not safe anymore, then it's already too late. So if you see yourself mm. going down that path, it's probably time to start considering it. Because if you decide, you know, July 1st, that you're going to send your kid to residential, there's a journey to get there. And it's, you know, it, it's a long process and that's fine that it's a process. but by then it's probably not that it's too late now you're going to prolong your misery and then realize that it's going to be difficult but i would do it over again in a heartbeat because it's kind of like going to the gym you know it really isn't fun when you first start going and nobody really wants to be up and going to the gym but once you start going and once you get in the habit it's totally worth it it's the same thing with the kids is that there's it's difficult. It's not easy. But once you start, it's so worth it. Um, and for me, the reason that I like the CASA model so much was that our therapist worked with us first in every family session and then brought him in. And that ensured that we were growing as much as we could at the same pace and not just putting all of it on us or all of it on him. Because I, as I said before, I needed to change how I did things. So when he came home and was acting differently, I was reacting in a way that was appropriate to meet him where he was. Yeah. And, and that's what CASA does so well. I mean, it teaches us that we, we learn and we heal in relation and in relationship, right? You don't, you don't learn trust you don't learn safety you experience it inside of a safe trusting relationship mm -hmm. and that's that's what's so beautiful about that model and i think why it works so well um it's it's great to hear the journey that that victor has been on and where he's at today um you must i mean how do you feel today where, where you're at today with with victor it today i mean when i look back on where we were it is amazing. Like, I wouldn't, honestly, we wouldn't have believed it possible. Um, and I think the thing is, is that that's why I'm such a huge advocate, you know, because a lot of times the, the kids get written off um, or are labeled in unfairly and don't get the resources that they need. And 
it's they're just kids. I mean, we've got to remember that, that no matter what, they're just kids. And it's, you know, I mean, for us, you know, we fought tooth and nail for him. Um, I remember when he was five, we took him to go see a psychologist, or he was four, actually, and the psychologist came out after an hour, and she was like, yeah, there's not much you can do for him. You know, like, basically don't have high hopes. Um, And he was four. Um, He wasn't diagnosed as autistic until he was five. And, I mean, it's like, you know, you for us, it, it was, we just never stopped fighting because we knew there was goodness there. And once we got the neurotherapy, like I can't say enough good things about it. The neurotherapy slowed things down enough that all the therapy could stick. And because all the therapy in the world isn't going to work on a brain that's on fire. Beautiful. Um, Richard, I really, I want to acknowledge you for just the uh, unstoppable stand and an advocate you have been for your child to get the right treatment and also for being able to explain so eloquently to parents why some treatment modalities don't work and why this one is different and not to give up because so often parents will come wondering why, well, we've tried all these treatments. Why will this be different? What's going to be different about this? And, and you just so beautifully put you know, what makes this approach different and why it works so well for your son. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate you continuing to be an advocate for behavioral health for your son and for this this program. I invite those of you who are watching today to subscribe to Roadmap to Joy, wherever you may find podcasts and come back and listen to us again. Thank you so much for having me.